Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege that is above all privileges as we live in this life, and that is to consider your word. And I ask that now you would do what we cannot do, is that open our eyes in greater measure by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might behold wonderful things from your word, particularly your son, Jesus Christ, and, and that you would conform us to his image as we consider your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, can I move this? All right, here we go. If you would, please turn to God's word, Second uh, Corinthians, Paul's letter, Second Corinthians. And uh, all of the, uh, you, you know who I am, you know, well, you know that I'm preaching, there was no title, it's all on me. Uh, not anybody from the church, so uh, it's on me. What can I say? But the text this morning will be Second Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 17. But I'm also going to read after that uh, chapter 4 um, to the end of the chapter. I think it helps us understand uh, more fully what Paul is speaking here. So if you would, please turn to Second Corinthians 2, and I'll begin with verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. And then over to chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Though we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of God. The uh, title of this sermon that I'm preaching today is One Gospel to Aromas. And we'll see this in the text uh, a little later on. And, um, but what I want to do is, before I even tell you what my doctrine is, or what the, the idea of this text is, I want to give you a story that will make sense, I, I think, as we move on. Uh, I'm not into just random stories, uh, but I think this is helpful. Uh, back in the late 1960s or early 1970s, there was a commercial on television for a product called Cheese Doodles. It was like Cheetos. Uh, I don't even know if they make them anymore. I've tried to find the commercial uh, online. I haven't found it. But there was the, the commercial is about a, a, a young girl and her mother is sending her across town by herself. That's very interesting. And uh, she gives her a bag of cheese doodles. And she says, you can have some, but save some cheese doodles for grandma. Save some cheese doodles for grandma. And so the girl takes the bag. Okay, got it, mom. Heads across town. Save some cheese doodles for grandma. Save some cheese doodles for grandma. And she gets to her grandmother's door. And she says, Grandma, guess what I have for you? And she looks at the bag. She goes, me. She had downed the whole bag. Now, the point of this story is the admonition her mother gave her, <laughs> the clear admonition had no effect on her. You know, it had no effect on her. She ate the whole bag. She did not save some cheese doodles for Grandma. And the reason I bring this up is, is that even as God's people, I think sometimes we're not really grasping what the text is saying either wonderful words or or difficult words and I think this text today is a good example of that and I think you'll see it as we if we as we move through this text and the general uh, idea of this text are characteristics of a faithful ministry characteristics of a faithful ministry and the the first thing we'll look at is the power and substance of ministry the power and substance of ministry Second, the effects of ministry, the effects of ministry. And then finally, the method of ministry, the method of ministry. And so first, the power and substance of ministry, and we see this in 2.14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That's the first part, and I just want to look at the power of the ministry. He always leads us in triumphal procession, that it's always a winning ministry. Now, if you've read the whole book of 2 Corinthians, or if you're an unbeliever, you say, what are you talking about? It sounds like a loser if you read the book of 2 Corinthians. At the beginning, in chapter 1, Paul's despairing of life itself. What's so great about that? You move on through the book, and by, you get to, by chapter 11, he's talking about all the things he suffered. He, he, had, he had endured the 40 lashes minus one, I believe, five times. He'd been stoned. All these things had happened to him. This is triumphal procession? This is not like the triumphal procession of the world. You know, there's a place for those kind of triumphal processions. You know, a team wins a... A championship, and they, the whole city just goes out, and they're they're waving to the crowds. But this is a different kind of triumphal procession. But God's word says it is a 
triumphal procession into Christ always leads them in triumphal procession. And this is where we have to think very carefully, well, this is a different kind of procession. This is different than the world's procession. And yet it's absolutely triumphant. And so we, we need to realize that the movement of the church is not triumphalism. God's purpose is going forward, and nobody will stop it. The gates of hell will not stop it. It is going forward all the time. There is no power in earth or in heaven to stop his kingdom from going forward. It's always a triumphal procession. It's not that we're going to take over the worldly powers and win the day. We see in the New Testament that there's, the kingdom goes forward in, in humble ways into cracks and crevices of the government. And there's these godly people who are lights in a, in a dark world in the government. Now, sometimes God brings revival, and it's like the whole, whole areas just turn over and come to Christ. But often it's the slow, steady work of the Spirit subduing those who are his enemies and making them his children by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is so important when we look at the the life of Paul. Paul's life was a cake as he was a persecutor of the church in a sense. His body was fully intact. But as soon as he's converted at Acts 9, where's my friend Cecil and Charlie? Okay? It's this story about Paul, Saul who became Saul who became Paul, and what happened was Saul was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. His, his, he was adding his amen to Stephen being stoned in the earlier chapters. But he himself, his body was in good shape. But Christ had other purposes for him. He overruled the evil of, of Saul. He was the elect from the, before the foundation of the world. God had a plan for him to be an apostle. And in Acts 9, we see the transformation. And we see Saul being humbled. And, and Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Now, this is really important. It's right there in the scriptures. It's right there on the page. And I think it's, it's an amazing thing that Paul would do all these wonderful acts that we see in 2 Corinthians as a faithful follower of Christ and because of Christ. But it's not just, it's not just Paul. If you look at the apostles, the apostles really faced very little up until the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose, in a sense. The powers of hell come against the, the church of Christ. And yet the church just keeps moving forward. The apostle John loses his brother James. Stonings, imprisonments, death. That was the norm in the book of Acts. And we see this go on and on. And yet the church is moving forward because it's Christ's church. And, not, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But it's so important to see how it goes forward. How it goes forward. I, I've shared with you before my love of the, the person Superman. <laughs> He's my favorite super he, superhero. I was enamored with him as a child. And what's interesting is that he was created by two Jewish men. 
in a sense, you could argue that they had this, even though they didn't know what they were doing, they were creating kind of what some of the Jews expected, this worldly hero who was just going to take over in a worldly way. He sounds, when you look at Superman, he looks like Absalom or somebody. Great, great, great hair, great body. And yet it's so important to see, what does Jesus look like? What does Isaiah 53 say? He had, he had nothing to attract us to him by nature. And yet he was the savior of the world, and he would subdue his elect, who were his enemies originally, and make them his own. And the kingdom would go forth. The only kingdom that matters. Countries rise and fall, but not Christ. Not his kingdom, not his people. If you looked at Paul, you wouldn't be impressed. Second Corinthians, uh, uh, well, at one point, uh, it's 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, it says, uh, about Paul, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. In this weakness, Paul was moving forward the kingdom of God. It's an amazing thing. And this is how God moves. He moves in our weakness because it's not us alone anymore. Once you come to Christ, you're united to Christ. We are jars of clay. Jars of clay break when you drop them. But when you come to Christ, you're united to Christ, and all his riches and all his power is yours. And so Paul goes forward in the strength of Christ. At the end of his letter, what does he say? After he, he lists all these things he suffered, and we'll talk about why he goes through this. Okay, he has all these things, difficult things. This, his back was torn to shreds because of the 40 lashes minus one. And then he says, on top of this, I have this thorn in the flesh. I'm thinking, what about this list? Isn't that something you want to be delivered from? But there was something, it seems like, not, none of these things that he was asking the Lord to deliver him from. As it moves into chapter 12, and the Lord says, I'm going to keep it. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul didn't say, what I, if you took this away, I could serve so much better, Lord. He's not like those where the, the bowls of wrath are poured out in the book of Revelation, and they grind their teeth, and they curse God. What a vanity. But he says, I'm content for all, with all these things. It's the power of Christ will rest upon me. And we're going to see this over and over again, but what an example of Christ. We see Christ in the garden, the Son of God, through whom all things uh, were made and for whom all things were made, Colossians 1.16 says. That's an amazing verse, that everybody outside who are unbelievers, they were made for Christ, but they're rebels now because of the fall of Adam. But God takes some and he brings them to himself to make them his children. A radical turnaround. This gets back to our, the story about Saul and Paul. This radical transformation. This great persecutor of the church becomes a great lover of the church and will suffer all these things. And Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. It's hard to think of anybody who followed Christ more faithfully, who looked more like Christ than the Apostle Paul. He will say, I bear the marks of Christ in my body. It wasn't mere words. 
He had suffered a great deal, and yet it was a great joy to him. And this was all in obedience. This was not in rebellion. This was in obedience to Christ. But often, God's people find themselves suffering for righteousness' sake. And their desires to have their eyes fixed on their, their Lord to obey Him, come what may. Just like the Son of God has its eyes on the Father. Father, not my will, but thine be done. And he's in the garden. He's contemplating his taking on the sins of his people. Now, we often think of the wrath of God as a positive, negative thing. And that's true. But he had never, never not known perfect unity with the Father. He loved the Father. The Father loved him. While he lived on the, in the world... Everything he did was in perfect harmony with the Father. I mean, I think even the, the slightest movement of his body was in perfect harmony. When we think of sins, we often think of, of actions or words or thoughts, but even his affections were perfectly in, in, in communion with the Father until, until the cross. Not that he was disobedient, but he was going to be the sins of his people. And his father turns his face away because he wasn't just God and he wasn't just man. He was the God man. And as man, he had to bear the sins of men for those for whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world. And I think as he was in there sweating great drops of blood, the incredible pressure that was on his body as he contemplated what was ahead so that his people might never have it. He was, it was a horrible thought to think of not knowing that fellowship with the Father, the one he loved so much. And if you think about it, if all things have been created through Christ and for Christ, as Colossians 1.16 says, that means that's our, that's our reference point. That's where our identity comes from, from Christ. But there's those who are his enemies in the world. When Adam fell, he became an enemy by nature. And yet God would come by his almighty power and save a people for himself. He would send his son to bear their sins on the cross that they might never know that wrath. It is a glorious, glorious reality of the gospel. And so it's important to see this, that the leaders of the church often are the ones who suffer the most. If they're following Christ, like I said, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul suffered just like Christ unjustly and yet joyfully. As Christ wanted to please the Father, Paul wanted to please the Lord in all things. And so we need to see what Paul is saying here. This won't make any sense if we don't understand it rightly. And so we see this, this great power at work. It's triumphant. And so the church goes forward. Some are martyrs for the church. We even prayed earlier those in other countries where there's great opposition to the gospel. But there's great opposition to the gospel here too. And so we shouldn't be surprised because some hate the gospel. But the gospel goes forward and people like Saul become Paul and are new people in Christ. That is the work of the gospel. The gospel of the scriptures. And so if you find yourself weak in any, any way that's no surprise because we are jars of clay but you're not you're not by yourself this is so important i think the church doesn't get this you're united to christ 
and all the riches in Christ are yours. That's how you can be powerful in Christ. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was no small thing. Those who were locked in the room with fear because of what might happen to them, after the, after the Holy Spirit comes, Peter, who was afraid, who denied Christ before a servant girl, is out in public preaching Christ. It's the power of the Holy Spirit at work, turning his cowardice into, into, into courage to preach the gospel. And then Peter starts to suffer for it. But he's victorious. Jesus was victorious on the cross. He, he was the great victor. He was the great champion like David where he saved the people for himself. He was a great king because it was not the entities of the world that was Israel's real problem. It was their sin. And so we need to see how glorious this work is. It's so important. And so don't be discouraged if you feel weak. Sometimes we feel weak. But it's just like Paul that we might have the power of Christ rest upon us. It's not us. It's not us to receive the glory, right? It's all about Christ. And that's what we want. I'm, I'm a pittance in the whole body of Christ. I have something to do. Lord willing, I will do it faithfully. And you will too. But it's Christ who gets the glory. We share in his glory in this marvelous kingdom that's coming. And when all the vanity of this world passes away, it will be the glory of Christ and his kingdom that will remain. And as we are in Christ, we will share in that glory. As we already sang praises to Christ. It'll be for all eternity. It won't be like countries that rise and fall, rise and fall. And so it's so important that we understand this. So we see the power, but we also see the substance. And this is in the second part of 2.14. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That when people see you, if you're Christ, they'd be like, it's, it's going to be the aroma of Christ. That as a body, you are the, the aroma of Christ. That's the goal. That's the calling that we have. This is so important that the whole ministry is about Christ. And as the church seeks to be faithful to God's word in executing the ministry, that's what you'll be, the aroma of Christ. Because you're following, you're following the word of God. You're being obedient. So it's just a reminder to think about what is, what is Christ really doing? What does his kingdom look like? It's going forward, and nobody will thwart him. Saul was an uh, uh, adamant opposer of Christ, and it was no contest for the Spirit of God to change his heart and to bring him to himself and make him his, his wonderful servant. So we need to be encouraged. We're not, it's not just us. It's the power of Christ always goes forward in, in triumphal uh, procession, and it's always about Christ. It's not about us, it's about Christ. So first, the power and substance of ministry, and second, the effects of ministry. And this is where the title of this sermon came from, verses uh, 2.15 to 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And this is where, hopefully the words hit us, it's like this one ministry has two aromas. To one it is, it is glorious, and to one it is horrific. 
To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now, five years ago in July, I drove one of my daughters to Memphis. They're both teachers in Memphis. They live together in Memphis. And we're driving to Memphis, and Memphis is very hot and very humid. And we're driving down the main road, and it was steamy, and there was a puddle in the road. And we went through the puddle, and it splashed up on my van. And it was the worst smell I'd ever smelled in my life. It smelled like rotted flesh. Maybe some old pig fell off of a, <laughs> off of a truck, and the juices were there, and it, it coated my van, and it was dried immediately because it was so hot. But there was this horrible stench. And I drove off the, one of the closest exits. This is not wise. I went, Bleh! It's like I already knew it was bad, but I, I smelled it. And I went to a car wash to get rid of it. It was the worst thing I'd ever smelled, literally, in my whole life. But then there's a contrast. I went to Arlington Cemetery about a year ago. My, my mom was buried there back in 1963. I think I've shared my mom died when I was six. So I went with my stepmother because my father's buried there. Beautiful, beautiful cemetery. And there's a magnolia tree. I don't think I'd ever smelled a magnolia blossom in my life. And I smelled the blossom, I thought, this is exquisite. This is one of the most beautiful things I've ever smelled in my life. They must make perfume like this. It's so good. But you see, when Paul says that this ministry of theirs in the gospel, to some it smells like rotted flesh. To others, it's the most glorious thing they've ever smelled. The aroma of Christ. One Christ, two aromas. And for those of us who love Christ, it's like, how could that be? Christ is so glorious. We have hymns that we sing. Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast. But sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. Nor voice can sing, nor heart can frame, nor can the memory find a sweeter sound than thy blessed name, O Savior of mankind. Or another one, which is one of my favorites. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. That's who Jesus is to us who believe in Christ by God's grace. But to those outside, he's a stench. It doesn't usually come off as a, as a, as in, a, in a violent way. It does sometimes in other countries and even here. More it's just apathy. The glorious Lord Jesus Christ like, eh. What do you mean, eh? He gave his life for his people. How can you, eh? And yet this is what happens when the gospel goes forward. It does two things. It brings salvation and it brings judgment. John Calvin says, Thus Christ came not into the world to condemn the world. For what need was there of this? Inasmuch as without him we are all condemned. After the fall we're all condemned. Yet he sends his apostles to bind as well as to loose to retain sins as well as remit them. He is the light of the world, but he blinds unbelievers. He is a rock for a foundation, but he is also to many a stone of stumbling. We must always, therefore, distinguish between the proper offer of the gospel, office of the gospel, and the accidental one, so to speak, which must be imputed to the depravity of mankind to which it is owing, that life to them is turned into death. As I've been reading the scriptures lately, one thing that comes off the pages is that how Jesus was this, this one from heaven who comes to warn us about the wrath to come. He comes to bear the sins of his people. He is the light of the world in a world that loves darkness. And so we see madness in the world. 
the madness of sin. And so we shouldn't be surprised because that's the result of the fall. It made us stupid. Think about what Adam did after the fall. He and Eve tried to hide. Hide from God who sees all things. When I was a kid, we had a fish tank. You know, we had maybe a rock. <laughs> if I had one fish in there and it tried to hide, it's like, that was vain. You know? But see, sin makes us stupid. It makes us irrational. It makes us foolish. And that's what's so amazing about the grace of God when it comes to us. It turns us around. It makes us new creatures. And every time the gospel goes out, two things are happening. Some sinners are being hardened in their sin, and some are being saved unto salvation. We read of this in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 14 of Saving Faith. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word by which also and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer is increased and strengthened that this faith gets stronger and stronger. By this faith a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acteth differently upon uh, which each particular passage thereof containeth yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. That this is what Christ has done. He's come into the world to bear the sins of his people. The world is already under its judgment. It's already a dark world that's opposed to God. But Christ comes in as the light of the world, and the gospel goes forth. It went forth from him to the apostles and now to the church at large. And it's the same message. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And some people, it is, it is death, and some people love it. And we need to understand that because we'll be tempted to truncate or to morph the gospel, which is very wicked. In some places in the church, they want to change the gospel to make it more palatable. But Paul would have none of that. The gospel is sufficient to bring in the elect, as is. It's Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. Grace alone, grace alone, grace alone. And so as, as you live your life in this world, some will hate you because you're a Christian. It could be from various degrees because you want to be honest in a work situation. Because you love to talk about Jesus. I heard about a, uh, there was a funeral for a fellow that used to be in our church. And at the funeral, this guy stood up and he said, I used to work with this guy and I hated him. He was always talking about Jesus. And then one day, <laughs> the Lord changed his heart. And here he is testifying to the faithfulness of the guy whose funeral we were at. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And so we should not be surprised when there's opposition. There's no, it's no surprise. Some will hate you and some will love you. But we keep moving on with the gospel. Just like Paul did, just like the apostles did. Now this does raise a question about loved ones who are outside of Christ or who are rebelling against Christ. Well, we have, the, we have access to the throne of grace. And I don't say this in a vacuum. I have my own family members that I love dearly and who are not in Christ, who are at least evident not living for Christ. And so I pray. I pray every day. 
And we'll see what the Lord does. He's sovereign. He doesn't owe us anything, but he's kind, and he does great and marvelous things. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. So as soon as we think of something, it's already too small. We shouldn't be surprised, particularly when we see Saul going from a God-hater to a God-lover and worshiper, that he might be pleased to save others. That's the, that's the encouragement we have as we go forward in Christ. So we see the power and substance of the ministry, the effects of the ministry, and finally the method of the ministry. And we see this in 2.16 to 17. I'm sorry, it's really verse uh, 17. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of, the, of God's word, but as men of sincerity and as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Everything we do is before the eyes of God. And yet Paul is saying, we're not going to be like those, these super apostles he'll talk about later, who it doesn't seem is so much doctorally wrong, it's why they're doing it. Whether financial gain or for moving up the ladder. And it's a very, very sad commentary because I see it in the church at large. The ministry of Christ is is presenting the gospel sincerely before the consciences of men that Christ might be manifested and to trust the Holy Spirit to do as he's pleased, to bring in the elect and to harden those whom God will not save. That's what happens when the gospel goes out. I heard this one pastor say one time, when I'm preaching the gospel, I can see some people trying to shove it back down my throat. But not for all of us. For most of us, we love it. It's the most glorious message we've ever heard. But some people do these things for worldly reasons. I see these people going up the ladder in the church. It's like, what about the flock you started with? You're called to be a shepherd. What about that? You're accountable. You'll give an account for those sheep as you're going up the ladder, making a name for yourself. It's a very grievous reality. And every, everybody in, the, in, in leadership has to, to guard and, 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 and watch their heart. What, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it to make a name for myself? Is it to put my name out there? Or is it that Christ would be magnified? Paul says, I don't preach myself, I preach Christ, and we're your servants for Christ's sake. That's the, that's, the, that's the way of ministry. And so it's very, very sad that these people would, would want to lift themselves up. We, we, get a, we get a warning from Paul in 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 to 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. I'm so glad you read so much Scripture here. To exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And here's this last warning. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. You can say the primary calling of a a pastor is to watch himself so that he, like a rudder of a church in a sense, is right on target. 
he's right on course. He's not varying over here for vanity or varying over here for money. He wants to be faithful to the Lord, like Paul to the Lord, like the Lord to the Father. That is what the ministry is about. So all of this is part of a, of a, a wonderful ministry. All these things, the power, the aroma, all these things. And that's what you are as a body of Christ as you go forward faithfully following him. And the, and the thing that's so encouraging is Christ says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Let me read as we close here, Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a light unto our path, and particularly a light unto our salvation and to the gospel. Father, we, we ask that you would grant the truth of your words to sink deeply into us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would have your thoughts in our minds and not our own thoughts. I pray for the ministry of this church, that you would bless them and their pastor as they go forward in Christ, that their delight would be to hear your word and to obey it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that Christ would be lifted up and many might be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name.